to a Reformation edition of The Bible Teachers. Please join Eddie and McClintock and Dr. Barry Harker in the studio for today's study. Greetings and a warm welcome. Thank you for tuning into this special radio program looking at the Reformation. And we're celebrating the Reformation because it's the 500-year anniversary, if you date it from Martin Luther's thesis being nailed to the Wittenberg Castle church door, Back in 1517 on the 31st of October of that year And we're going to look at uh, the issues that developed from there In relation to uh, claims of infallibility In relation to issues of claim of succession And therefore obviously of authority So uh, the, the protest regarding authority goes back to It's not only the authority of the scripture that's recognized, but now it's also the authority of tradition, the authority of the church, and the authority of the pope. And, of course, the authority of the pope has to do with this claim that they are the successor of Peter, and Peter was the rock on which the church was to be built. In the studio, I have a special guest. This is the second program we're doing with Dr. Barry Harker regarding the Reformation. He just recently came back from a Reformation tour and also has written a book which called is called It Is Sunday in America. And this book is available on Amazon and should be available from about mid-November 2017. So, Dr. Barry, welcome. It's good to have you in the studio just to be sharing some thoughts regarding this very important topic. Thanks, Adrian. It's great to be here. Yeah. So our, our program in the first one actually looked at the primacy of Scripture and understanding Scripture and letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So understanding that the Old Testament and the New Testament are harmonious and that if we are to receive a revelation from God, we can use reason, but reason has to conform to the will of God as revealed through His Scripture. Teachings in the Bible. That's correct. Hmm. So, what are we looking at in, in this program? Program number two. Well, we're looking at the issue. We're going to start with the issue of the ecumenical movement because, even though we're talking about the 500th anniversary, over the last 50 years, particularly, there's been a movement towards reunification of Christianity. We call it the ecumenical movement. So, we want to have a look at the type of unity that's involved in the ecumenical movement. Then, we hmm. want to have a look at what the scripture actually says about unity. Okay. And those issues that you raised in relationship to apostolic authority and apostolic succession, we also need to have another look at those again. Because not only is this relevant to the history of the Reformation, it's also a contemporary issue in relationship to the ecumenical movement. Because, I mean, the whole ecumenical movement is a call for unity, for Christian unity, that the Christian faiths come together and uh, unite on those points of doctrine which they hold in common. That's right. And so really everyone, all of us, has a stake in these issues, Hmm. whether we're Christian or not, Roman Catholic or Protestant. We all have a stake in these issues, and we need to revisit them and to find out what the Scripture says about them Um, because we may find earlier than we think having to conform to... um, sets of rules and regulations that return with the ecumenical movement Hmm. that we might be opposed to. So it's wise for us to have a look at Scripture and see what the Scripture has to say about these issues. And we're not doing it because we're trying to attack anyone. We're just simply trying to find out what the Scripture says, and we're trying Hmm. to set our sails on the basis of the Scripture. You also sort of made reference there, is it possible that this ecumenical movement, if successful, the outcome would be that religious liberty would be taken from, from people? Well, there was no religious liberty before the Reformation. Right. So we have to ask the question, what's going to happen if the Reformation comes to a terminus, comes to a point where Mm. it's no longer considered relevant, that everyone's decided they're going to 
um, agree maybe to disagree, but they're going to unite on points held in common and just de-emphasise the points that they don't hold in common. Mm. So the whole the whole question is irrelevant, it's not just to those who are members of the Catholic or Protestant churches, but also to the entire society, because when all the churches unite, they create a significant minority, maybe even a majority in some countries. Yes. And so we have to ask the question, what's going to happen if the Reformation is unpicked? Mm. Are we going to return to the sorts of conditions that we had in the past? What are the implications for freedom of religion, yes. freedom of speech, freedom of worship? How is it going to impact my lifestyle, my capacity to make choices? All of these sorts of questions need to be raised around this time mm. as we look back on these issues. By the way, we don't, we don't just see the Reformation as something that happened in the past. The Reformation is something that we actually live in now. Right. The Reformation gave us our religious freedoms. That's right. And our so freedom it, of speech. Yeah. It took a while for the mm. Reformation to do that, but the Reformation was responsible for that. So we mm. need to be asking the question, if we unpick the Reformation... What's going to happen? That is a good good point and a good question to ask because we are all li- living under the benefits. If you have religious freedom at the moment, you can worship or not worship according to the dictates of your conscience. Yes, so you have freedom from religion as well as freedom of religion. Of religion and yes. both are important. Mm, mm. And, of course, the principles that came out of the Reformation, the principles are republicanism and Protestantism. So the republicanism is actually protecting the rights of even the minority to worship according to the dictates of their conscience. So it's not just a democracy. Republicanism is greater than that. It actually looks after the rights of the minority. Yes, yeah, so you have to have a constitutional democracy. Yes. Democracy just Based on means, law. Yeah, yeah, based on law. So a democracy can be just majority rule, mm. but the majority might be um, in favor of something that restricts the liberties of others. That's right. So that's why we have a constitutional democracy mm. in our own country here in Australia. And uh, that means that the rights of minorities are protected Mm. in that situation. Mm. They're constitutionally protected. So that constitutional protection is really important. And that came out of... That came out of the Reformation. It came out as one of the consequences of the Reformation. So we owe our freedoms and our existing lifestyle to the freedoms that emerged from the Reformation. So we have a vested interest in discussing the Reformation because this is relevant to our continuing freedoms, Mm, I believe. Absolutely. So what we're saying is we're not opposed to unity as long as it's based on the Word of God and the principles that God has espoused in His Scripture. Yeah, we should all be interested in what the Scripture has to say about it. As much as within us we have to live peaceably with one another, but we do not want to compromise anything that is contrary to what God has revealed because that would be insubordination to the... the, um, I guess the the principles of God's kingdom and His constitution. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's I think it's important for us to acknowledge that unity is important. None of us wants to see unnecessary division mm. or strife or conflict and so forth. We want to live in a harmonious society. Absolutely. And we want everyone to have their rights extended to them. Mm. And so uh, we're not opposed to unity, but we want to make sure we've got the right type of unity, the uh, one that yes. God can approve. Yes. Amen. So let's have a look at um, the whole issue of unity. Now, we hear a lot today about John 17, and actually movements based on John 17 around unity. And um, this is the prayer that Jesus gave to, the prayer that Jesus prayed to his father prior to the crucifixion. It's a beautiful prayer, Mm. and it shows a lot of care and concern for us and for his people on earth. But when you get down to verse 21 we discover that the sort of unity 
that the ecumenical movement has, which is really de-emphasis of difference and uniting around the points held in common. Yes. Well, this is a compromise unity. So we want to make sure that the type of unity that we have can be approved by God. So let's have a look at verses 21 to 23, for example. We could read other verses as well, but uh, you might like to read those, uh, verses 21 to 23 of John okay. 17. It says, That they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, one of the reasons for, for the ecumenical unity, one of the stated reasons, is that this is a common Christian witness to the world, mm. as, God, you know, as God intended. But let's have a look at each of those three verses. If you look at verse 21, it says, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee that there may also be one in us. In other words, the unity between the Father and the Son is to be the unity between the Godhead and us. Yes. And that sort of unity is the sort of unity that we need to have with each other. Mm. In other words, it's not a compromise unity. And in fact, the bar is set pretty high there because the type of unity is the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. So then... If you look at um, the issue of, well, is the world going to be influenced by this type of unity? Yes, because God says it will be. Because the world will believe. Yeah, the world yeah. will believe when they see the type of unity, unity yeah. that exists between believers as it exists between the Father and the Son. Mm. And so it's important that the unity is not a compromise unity. Yes. And God's setting the bar really high here. So the world is only going to believe when it sees genuine unity based upon genuine sanctification and truth as we see here. Now you look at verse 22, and again it just reinforces this point, that true unity shares in the unity of the Godhead. Right. Uh, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 23, we see again that this is not a compromise unity. I and them, and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So yes, there is a witness to the world when there's unity. Mm. But a compromise unity doesn't cut it. The unity has to be that same level of unity between the Father and the Son. Yes. So let's have a look at some other passages of Scripture that um, are looking at this particular issue. So the oneness of the Godhead is actually the pattern for the oneness of believers, both to God and to each other. Have a look at Ephesians 4 and verse 13. Okay, and it says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so what sort of unity is it? Yeah, well, it's a unity that comes from the knowledge of the Son of God. Yes, but earlier in the piece it says it's the unity of, of faith, of the faith. faith. Yeah. Not faith, not it's a, a singular. unity of faith. Yeah. It's a unity of the faith. Well, if you read earlier in that uh, in that uh, chapter there in Ephesians 4, it actually talks about the fact that there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope in your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So it's very clear already that in that chapter there's an establishment that there's not multiple faiths that have come together. It is one faith based one faith. on one God yes. and one Lord. Yes. Have a look at uh, Jude chapter, uh, Jude verse uh, 3. There's only one chapter in Jude. 
and verse 3. What's it telling us here? Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, so there's only one faith delivered to the saints, Mm. and that's the one that we are to contend for. So it's not a a contention for faith. Now, I think what the ecumenical movement does is it takes shortcuts. It tries to create a unity where there is no unity. Right. But the Bible is talking about a unity based on agreement around the the doctrines and the truths of the Bible. Mm. And that's a quite different form. You would hope the two are the same, but not necessarily. And we need to we need to look at this whole issue of the, uh, ecumenism because just about everything I read about this topic thinks it's a good thing. Right. But ecumenism has a dark side, as we've hinted at. Mm. Um, for example, um, Pope Francis, when he was talking about his model of reconciled diversity, that is where you can have diversity but everyone gets together, de-emphasizes the difference, all inside the same tent, all believing different things, but holding something in common that's strong enough to hold everyone together together, and stop them from splitting apart Mm. and de-emphasizing the differences so that they don't become fracturing inside the the tent of ecumenism. But Mm. he's actually said, in relationship to that model of reconciled diversity, that we shouldn't tolerate proselytism. He actually called it a poison for the ecumenical journey. Okay. So what's proselytism? That's a capacity to share your faith and to get converts to your faith. So that's already a restriction of uh, liberty Absolutely. in regards to religion to a certain yeah. extent. So if, if we had an ecumenical movement that resulted in the inability to be able to proselytize, to extend your faith, that's really shutting down as- important aspects of religious liberty and mm. freedom of speech. And so this, to me, is a warning sign that we need to investigate this more closely and find out the type of unity that is being proposed. So this is a, this is a live issue for us mm. because we're facing the prospect that the ecumenical unity will take place. Certainly in 2017, it's closer than it's ever been before. In fact, we've also had um, the Lutheran World Federation and the Roman Catholic Church put out a document called from conflict to communion, which mm. was looking at the joint Lutheran Catholic commemoration of the Reformation in two, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. In I noticed you said commemoration and not celebration. Yeah, well, a commemoration yeah. is just remembering something. Yeah, yeah. But it's not a celebration. Like mm. we don't celebrate people who die. We, sure, but we might we, can, com- yeah. we don't celebrate the death of a soldier, for example. Mm. But we do commemorate it. Yeah. And so this, this is not a celebration of what happened. This is just a remembrance of what happened. In fact, if you read the document, you discover that there's a lot of, um, apolo- a lot of apologies made, but there's a lot of hand-wringing made too mm. um, because people feel that um, there were things that happened in the Reformation that shouldn't, and I agree that they shouldn't have happened. But life's muddy and not, it doesn't always work out the way we want to. But overwhelmingly, the Reformation finally stumbling as it did, managed to arrive at a point where we have freedoms like we have today. So um, this issue of ecumenism is a really important one as we come up to this time. We want to know that the ecumenical movement doesn't have a dark side. Mm. It's not going to involve a rollback of our freedoms in any way. Yes. And that we're still going to have our freedoms well into the future. We also know that um, already 
freedom of religion and freedom of expression are under threat, mm. given the equality agenda that's yes. roiling right through the Western world at this stage. So that's threatening freedom. So we need to ask these questions. What's the future going to look like if the ecumenical movement succeeds? Mm. And basically the ecumenical movement is a return, essentially, of many of the Protestant denominations to a unity with the Roman Catholic Church. So we okay. have to ask, what basis is there in Scripture for that to take place? Why right. should people be returning to the Roman Catholic Church or returning to union with the Roman Catholic Church at that time? Mm. And the two issues that crop up are apostolic authority and then apostolic succession. Okay. So apostolic um, authority is authority derived from the apostles. So has that come down to us through apostolic succession mm. from the time of the apostles? Are there successors of the apostles? And how would we know that they're successors of the apostles? So these are the sorts of issues that we can attack now. Okay, great. So the Roman Catholic um, claim is that the Pope has apostolic authority. Mm. The authority that was given to the apostles, primarily Peter, is the authority that the Pope exercises today because he exercises it supposedly in terms of apostolic succession. So okay. all the successive um, bishops of Rome have been in that succession. Mm. And we're going to have a look at what the Scripture has to say about that as well. So let's go to Matthew 16. And verses 18 and 19, we're also going to look at John chapter 21 and verses 15 to 17. These are the two primary places in Scripture where the Roman Catholic Church derives its authority. So let's have a look at these passages. Okay, you might John, like to read verse uh, six, uh, 18 and 19 of Matthew 16. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Hmm. So that's the claim, that um, the current pope exists in apostolic succession hmm. from Peter, the apostle, and exercises his authority. Okay. So we'll look at John twenty-one fifteen to 17 a little bit later, but let's just have a look now at this, at this passage. It says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So in verse 18, Jesus addresses Peter, whose name Petros means a piece of rock. Right. So let's have a look at this distinction between Petros and Petra. Okay. So Peter's name is? Petros. Petros. Okay. And if you check that out, like a Strong's number in the Bible, mm. which is the original Greek, it will say that it means a, a piece of rock. Yeah. Larger than a stone, but basically a rock. Yeah, okay. Mm. Then if you, you look in contrast to the rock or Petra that Jesus builds his church upon is a mass of rock. Okay, so it's a, it's a big rock. It's a big rock. It's not, yeah. a, it's not a, a, a large stone. <laughs> yeah, so Petra, Petros yeah. is from a stone, it's basically to a small rock. Right. Whereas when he talks about building his church on the rock, he's actually talking about Petra, not Petros. Mm. So he addresses Peter as Petros, the stone, and he said he's going to build his church on Petra, 
which is a massive rock. So there's a distinction between the name Peter and the rock, or Petros and Petra. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if Jesus meant Peter, he would say, that I'll say you are Peter, and on Peter I will build my church. Yes. But the words are not the same, so therefore it is not likening Peter, Petros, to the foundation of the church. Yes, by the way, those, um, the word Petra can mean a rock, a massive rock, literally or figuratively. Mm, okay. Okay. So this seems to indicate that Peter is not the rock or the foundation of the church, just simply based on the two usages, one of Petra, which is the rock, and mm. one of Petros, which is the, the stone. So Jesus is also described in Scripture as a rock. So we need to look at comparing this passage with other parts of Scripture because sure. that will give us the solution to our mm. problems. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. This is um, an important one. It's very explicit about what the rock is. And the Apostle Paul says, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Yeah, so um, Paul is actually talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Yes. Remember they had the... um, fire or the cloud to to guide them through, yes. the, through the wilderness. And so it's saying that the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ mm. himself. So the Bible is not calling Peter the rock, it's calling Christ the rock. And this, of course, is now subsequent to Jesus ascending to heaven and the apostles remaining excluding Judas to spread the gospel. Mm. So Paul's writing this uh, quite a few years after that statement that Jesus made, and he's still claiming that Christ is the rock, not Peter. Right. Now let's have a look at Matthew 7, verses um, 24 and 25. Matthew 7 and 24 and 25. I'll read them if you like. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. rock. Mm. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. rock. So basically, if you follow Jesus' words, you're building on a rock. Hmm. So So it's the hearing of the sayings of Jesus and doing the sayings of Jesus. That's the rock. Yes. Yeah. So um, also we discover that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And we find that in Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 20. So Ephesians 2 and verse 20. And it says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Mm. So we're starting to get a picture that the Bible is identifying what the rock is that he builds the church on. So it, it, it does it does say that you know, the apostles and the prophets have a part in the foundation, but the chief cornerstone is Christ. Mm-hmm. So apart from a cornerstone, obviously there's no no real solid foundation. Yeah, that's right. So if we look at First Peter two, four and five, maybe we could read verse three as well. Uh, First, well I'll start at verse two. First um, Peter, chapter two and verse two. It says, "As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby." If so, be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. 
Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Mm. So what we discover here is that Jesus is the living stone. We're living stones, and we're built into this house, and he's the chief cornerstone. Mm. So it's just talking about it from a spiritual perspective. From a spiritual not a perspective, perspective, yes, yeah, a yeah. spiritual perspective. Mm. And so he's also the chief. Uh, he's also the chief cornerstone, the stone which the builders rejected, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. This is First Peter two verses six and eight. It says, "Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture: Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious; but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed." The same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And so you can mm. see here that the, the, this metaphor of the rock is powerfully identified with Jesus. In his word as well. And in his word. Mm. So Christ is the only foundation, as we discover in First Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So is Peter the foundation or is Jesus the foundation? Well, no other foundation can be laid than which is laid, which is Christ. It's very clear that Jesus is their foundation. Okay. Now, Peter also describes Jesus as the stone who was rejected, but is now the head of the corner. Mm. And his name is the only name through which we can be saved. And that's in um, uh, Acts chapter 4 and verses 8 to 12. What does that say? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by which means um, he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation under any other name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So he's the chief cornerstone. Hmm. A cornerstone is absolutely important to a building, isn't it? That's right. So it's like, and he's the foundation. He's the foundation of the building. And so we, we as humans, are actually built into that, into that um, building as well. Mm. Now, we also discover there's no God beside God. And this is Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 8. So if we have a look there, Isaiah 44 and verse 8. I, I do like this text very much. Such an important text in regards to the claim of who the rock is, if Peter is the rock or not. Okay. And Isaiah 44, 8 says, Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Hmm. So God doesn't know any other rock beside himself. And if Jesus Christ is God then he is the rock, and there can't be any other rock besides God. Yeah, he also said he's not going to share his um, glory with another. Have a look at verse 11. Um, I think it's, no, this time it's Isaiah 48, not Isaiah 44. It's Isaiah 48 and verse 11. And it says, for my own sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? Hmm. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. I will not give my glory to another. So God is really telling us that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And also, the, if anybody claims to be the rock, they're claiming to be God because God said there in Isaiah 44 verse 8 that he knows there is no other God yes. and he knows no other rock. And we know in um, Isaiah 43, so just the previous chapter there, it actually says there in verse 10, it says, Before me there are no, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. And then verse 11 says, And besides me there is no Savior. Mm. So it's very clear that salvation can only come through God. There was no God formed before, no God formed other. God is the only rock, and anybody that claims that would, would, would claim to be equal with God. Yes. Mm. And we saw in Acts chapter um, 4, verses 8 to 12, we saw there that there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Yes. And so salvation doesn't come through the church. It comes through Jesus Christ. Now, if we look at the keys of the kingdom, so we've established basically from Scripture that the rock is Jesus Christ. Yes, it's very clear. Very clear. It's got to be a divine being, and if it's a human being, it's got to be a divine human being, which is Jesus Christ, God yes. manifest in the flesh. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so now have a look at John chapter 6 and verse 63. This was a really important passage because this was also a passage upon which the Reformation founded when Luther... And um, the Swiss reformers, Wingley, really? met yeah. in 14, uh, sorry, 1529 at mm. Marburg. They thrashed out this issue. Mm. And basically Zwingli, I think, had the better of the argument because he pointed out that when Jesus said, this is my body, he was not referring to us eating or, you know, take, eat, this is my body, that we weren't just having a physical repast. We weren't physically eating Jesus because of this particular verse, yeah. which explains what he was talking about. And this was a situation where the disciples were hearing from Jesus that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood or he had, they had no part with him. Mm. And many people got offended because they took it literally. Right. But look at verse 63 and what does it say there? Mm. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Mm. And didn't we, we discover... Basically, if you build your if you build your experience or your house upon the rock, mm. right, you're listening to the words of Jesus. That's right. So what we discover here is that the keys of the kingdom that are spoken about in Matthew 16 are actually the words of Jesus, because it's the words of Jesus that either give us salvation or lock heaven against us. Yes, that's what it's saying. You know, John chapter eight also says there, and Jesus speaking to those who believe, and it's there in verse 31. It says, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Yep. So it's very clear from that that abiding in the word of God makes us his disciples and that the truth of Christ is the one that sets us free. Hmm. Hmm. So what we have here in uh, Matthew 7 and verse 21 onwards is really the point that obedience to Jesus' words opens heaven hmm. and disobedience closes heaven against us. Well, and, that, we can see that, and we can see that in all of those verses from 21 down to 27. So he said, Everyone in verse 26 that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. Yes. So it's the words of Jesus that open or close heaven to us. Now when Jesus' words are preached, they become a savour of life unto life or death unto death. And we find that in Second Corinthians chapter 2 
and verse 16. So 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 16. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Hmm. So it just means that a person who preaches the gospel, if a person accepts their word, they're a savour of life unto life. If the person rejects it, it's a savour of death unto death. Mm. So it's the words of Jesus that are brought to them through preaching or reading the word of God or whatever that brings to them salvation, the option yes, of salvation. Eternal life or eternal death. So yeah. en- entrance to the kingdom of God or eternal destruction. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So the keys of the kingdom that were given to Peter are simply the words of Jesus. Mm. But he gave them to the whole church. Okay. They weren't just given to Peter. And so um, anyone who's called to preach the gospel has the keys of the kingdom, essentially, because the words that they bring from Scripture to people will either be a savour of life unto life or death unto death, because it's a choice that people are required to make. Their response right. is really important. Okay. So binding and loosing was not a privilege that was given exclusively to Peter. It was a privilege that was given to the local church when it acted in accordance with the gospel and the words of Jesus. Have a look at Matthew 18 and verses 15 to 18. So this is just a couple of chapters after the statement that we started with in in Matthew 16. Okay, and it says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Okay, to whom is that statement directed? Well, it's to the church. It's directed to the church. Yeah. So he's really saying that anyone who acts in accordance with the word of God has authority. Mm. But you don't have authority if you don't act in accordance with the word of God. So in this particular passage, the option of binding and loosing was given to the church. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't that the church would be uh, coercive It's simply that it would um, say to a person who was not acting in accordance with the words of Jesus that they could be basically treated as a heathen person if they refused to act in accordance with those words. In other words, the person could could not any longer remain a member of that organization or that church. Mm. So it was an act of discipline, but it was there was never any idea in there that there would be coercion or the power to injure or, or kill anyone as yes. a result of their non-compliance. Mm. It simply meant that if they behaved in a way that was inconsistent with the words of Jesus, then they could not be seen after people work with them a couple of times. If they persisted in their rebellion, then they had to be separated from the organization right. or the fellowship of those Christians. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and, and so the whole concept of excommunication, which comes from the concept that the Pope has authority over binding and loosing, is not upheld and not supported by this passage. So what you're saying is not left to one person. It's not left to one whole, person, The whole no, church no, can make the decision. That's yeah. a church decision, yes. Mm, okay. So th- this, is, um, this is really important for us to understand. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus supposedly conferred upon Peter supreme authority in Matthew 16... 
Not long after that, the disciples asked Jesus who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Have a look at chapter 18 and verses 1 to 4. This is actually prior to what we've just looked at. Right, okay. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. Because if Peter and the disciples understood that it was Peter who was being given preeminence, why would they ask this question? That is a good question. <laughs> well, this, yeah. is just, this is just a little time afterwards. If it had already been settled, if Jesus made it absolutely so clear to them that there was no doubt, then that question could never have been asked. Mm. But they came to Jesus and asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because they're all angling for the top jobs. One was wanting to be on the right hand and one on the left hand. Yes. And so they would often, as disciples, hang back from Jesus and argue about these issues, mm. which clearly indicated they didn't understand what Jesus was about. They loved him and wanted to serve him and follow him, mm. but their understanding was pretty limited at this stage and it was limited because of what we talked about in the previous program where they let their desires block out the sorts of things that Jesus was trying to get through to them with. Right, okay. So here we have a situation where um, they continued to bicker over these issues. Have a look at Matthew 20 and verses 20 to 28. Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to give, but it is to those to whom it is prepared for by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, so there's the spirit of Christianity. Mm. It's the spirit of Christ, where you're not willingly seeking the top position, but you're willing to be a servant and act in service to others. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus was going to wash their feet, and no one else had the humility to actually do the job. So Jesus took up the role. And then mm. Peter said to him, you know, look, you, you can't do this to me. You know, I'm not going to allow this. And Jesus said, well, look, if I don't do it to you, you don't have any part of me. And so Peter then just says, well, look, you know, wash me all over. But quite clearly, this spirit of um, ambition mm. had been percolating among the disciples right down to the evening before the crucifixion. And it wasn't until after the resurrection and even then, the disciples still had a limited understanding. But it wasn't until after the resurrection they understood what Christ was about, that he'd come 
to die for the human race. Right. And so it was this spirit of ambition that was preventing them from understanding what Jesus was trying to get through to them. Mm. And so when we look at this whole issue of authority, we have to see that authority only comes when we are acting in accordance with the words of God. So if we act in accordance with those words, we have scriptural authority. When we cease to act in accordance with those words, the authority goes. Okay. And that, that, applies, yeah. that applies to everyone. Yeah, yes, no, that's, that's very clear. So what we see is that um, when Jesus asked about the rewards the disciples would receive, he really only spoke about the group rewards in the regenerated earth. Have a look at Matthew 19 and verses 27 and 28. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, I have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in this generation, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So did Peter actually have any preeminence there? When he asked about the rewards, was he given preeminence, like you're going to get more rewards than all the others? Talks about 12 thrones Mm -hmm. and 12 12 men sitting on those thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it looks awfully like Peter was just considered to be one of the disciples and one of the 12 apostles. Mm, That's right. This is really important because the non-recognition of Peter's preeminence following Jesus' statement in Matthew 16, 18, 19 is extremely telling for the Catholic position. Mm. that the Pope is actually given the keys of the kingdom here in Matthew 16, 18, and 19. But you know, it actually gets worse for that position. Okay. Remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15? Yes, yes, I do. Well, James actually chaired that council. A strange thing to happen if Peter was preeminent. Wouldn't you think that um, Peter would have been given that position if everyone understood that he had preeminence? Don't you think they would have deferred to him? Absolutely. Well, they didn't. Mm. In fact, it was James, Jesus' brother, who actually presided at that council and summed up at the end. Right. Let's have a look at it. Uh, It's in Acts chapter 15. Okay, and it's from verse 13 there. It says, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon had declared how God at the first visit of the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity as his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Hmm. So, so basically James is actually some, you know, is well, there's an argument there, but actually it's... Um, James, who actually presides, but mm. Peter, Peter actually participates. If you look at um, verse 7, it says, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the, 
the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, Mm. and put no difference between us and them, purifying their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. So even though Peter participated, he was not presiding. Mm, okay. Now, this is this is really this important. This would be unusual if he was given superiority over the other other yeah, side. We have not we haven't discovered any evidence that Peter understood him even himself mm. that he was to be preeminent over the other other apostles. And in fact, um, he didn't even recognise it um, when he described himself as just another elder among elders. Have a look at First Peter chapter five and verse one. It says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Mm. If um, Peter was saying that um, he was, if he, if he understood that Jesus was saying that he was to be preeminent, mm. absolutely no evidence of it here. Yes. He's saying, I'm just an elder among other elders. Mm-hmm. So this should help us to understand the claim has to be validated. It's one thing to make the claim. It's another thing to actually validate the claim in Scripture. Right. Okay. So um, I think we've actually arrived at a point where we can see that the evidence simply isn't there that that the supposed apostolic authority of the Pope is not confirmed in Scripture. So if it's not confirmed with Peter, Hmm. it's not confirmed in any of his successors down the line. Right. And so this brings us to the whole question of apostolic succession. Hmm. So was one person given authority over and above the other apostles? So there's a senior apostle and then the other are subservient to that person. We don't see any evidence of that in Scripture. No, and we're going, and we're going to go back and have a look at in a moment. We're going to have a look at um, the whole issue of apostolic succession. Hmm. But before we do that, let's have a look at this other passage okay. that forms the basis of the claim. And that's John chapter 21 and verses 15 to 17. John 21 and verses 15 to 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, this is generally considered to be um, a unique charge to Peter that he was to feed to feed the flock. And this mm. this is supposedly Peter's preeminence here. Yeah. But have a look at um, Acts chapter 20 and verses 27 to 30. Because this tests whether this was a unique authority that was being given to Peter. So it's Acts 20 and verses 27 to 30. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 
For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Hmm. So who's speaking? It's Paul. It's Paul, yes. Speaking to the elders of Ephesus. And what's he saying to them? He says, um, be very careful. Because he says that there will be people speaking perverse things that will come in, you know, savage wolves not sparing the flock. But then he says, even from among themselves, yes. there will be people speaking perverse things to draw disciples after themselves. Yeah, the church has never had to worry about what comes from the outside. It's always had to worry about what, 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 happens, what comes from within. So if we look at this whole situation, we realize that Paul is actually saying that there are many overseers. So he's actually saying to them, it's not just committed to one individual. You're all overseers. Mm. You know, you're elders, you're overseers, you have a particular role. It's not just limited to Peter. It's not just authority that's been granted to one single individual. It's authority that's given to the church. Now, it's interesting that in Roman Catholicism, in the period in the 14th century, when there were three rival popes at one stage, three of them, Mm. that a movement that had been initiated earlier called conciliarism really started to strengthen. And that was the move to actually take away the authority of the Pope and vest it in a council. In other words, people are saying, we've got all this trouble. We've got three, we've got three different Popes all opposing each other. And uh, really, maybe this has come about because we've invested too much power in a single individual. Right. Maybe we need to take that power back and invest it in a council. Mm which is more in line with what the scripture is saying. Mind you, when uh, Martin V was um, elected in 1415 to, to end this schism, he had these conditions opposed on him, but through guile he managed to remove them over time. Mm. Even within Catholicism, you had this tension mm. between the center and the periphery. So it was like right. the church was having to decide whether it wanted to be centralized or whether it wanted to decentralize some of that authority. Mm. And so when we look at this particular passage, there's no hint here that um, when Jesus is talking to Peter in John chapter 21 and verses 15 to 17, that he's conferring a unique authority on Peter. Yeah, that's true. So now that brings us to the question of apostolic succession. Okay. Now, it's not only the Roman Catholic Church that has apostolic succession. Even the Anglicans believe that they have apostolic succession Mm. so that their archbishop is in a line of authority going right back to the apostles. The Orthodox have a a similar conception. And so it's not just Roman Catholicism that has a conception. But, you know, the Bible's pretty clear on what this is all about. Let's have a look at John chapter 8. And I think we might spend a little bit of time just looking at the issues that are raised there. John chapter 8, and probably start around verse 31. So maybe you'd like to start reading for us. Okay. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believe on him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Ah, what's he saying? If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Okay, so it's the word that actually defines whether you're a disciple. Mm. And it says, and in verse 32, And you shall know the truth... And the truth shall make you free. And in verse 33, And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will make us free? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. 
And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Hmm. And so as Jesus is talking to them, they, they're getting their backs up. Hmm. Because he's talking about them being in bondage. And they say, oh, we're not in bondage to any man. You know, we're Abraham's seed. Yeah. And he's basically saying, look, if you were Abraham's seed, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, the principle is if you want to have genuine apostolic succession, you have to behave like the apostles. You can't coerce people. Right. You can't coerce compliance or obedience. You can't persecute, oppress, or even put people to death mm. if you want to be a descendant of the apostle or a successor of the apostles. So really what Jesus is saying is it's spiritual likeness mm. to Jesus, okay. not physical descent. Or organizational descent It's spiritual likeness that determines Whether you have apostolic succession Yeah and it's interesting there in verse 37 It goes on to say I know that you are Abraham's descendants So by natural birth By natural birth But you seek to kill me Because my word has no place in you And then he says in verse 39 Jesus says uh, If you were Abraham's children You would do the works of Abraham But now you seek to kill me A man who has told you the truth which you heard from God, Abraham did not do this. In other words, because you're not like Abraham, you're really not like you're not like his children. Yeah. So this brings up the question: Were the lives of the Pope, all of the popes, mm. consistent with the lives of the apostles? If they weren't, there's no legitimate apostolic succession. Yeah, that's true. Yes. And so, spiritual likeness to the apostles and compliance with the teachings of Jesus is the criterion. So if that doesn't exist, then we discover that there is no apostolic succession. Mm. So the claim to apostolic authority and the claim to apostolic succession fall if there is no spiritual likeness to Christ mm. and adherence to his words. That mm. makes sense, yeah. These are the issues that we're actually being confronted with today. And um, I hope that as we've discussed these issues from Scripture that anyone who's not looked at these issues before might have an idea that maybe I need to have another look at this issue because this is, this is important for me to understand for my future. Mm. Great. Thank you, Dr. Barry Harker, for taking us through that study. So this is from Chapter 2 of your book, It's Sunday in America. Mm -hmm. And that book is available on Amazon from about mid-November 2017. So if you're interested in getting the research and uh, looking at all the chapters, there's six chapters in the book mm -hmm. from what I understand, you're welcome to go and uh, look for it there. Well, dear listener, thank you for joining us today on the study on the Reformation and the importance of what the Scripture teaches regarding the Church of God here on earth, which represents really just the faith of the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. So we thank you for joining us today And we look forward to catching up with you next time God bless You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio If you have any questions or comments In relation to today's program You can call 3ABN Australia Radio Within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3abn Australia. All one word. 
www.org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Hello, my name is Lucas and today I will be telling you an amazing fact. This amazing fact is called Our Steadfast Father. On April 29, 1903, the quiet mining town of Frank in Alberta was jolted into worldwide publicity when the side of a mountain in under whose shadow it lay gave way, resulted in the largest landslide in North American history. Native Indians who called it the mountain that walks had always avoided this mountain. It was six o'clock in the evening on April 28th and John Thornley had just bid the last customer in his shop goodnight. Sister Ellen stood in the kitchen cleaning up dishes. It was her last night in Frank before leaving to a nearby town. On a sudden impulse, John talked Ellen into spending her last night in a nearby hotel. Ellen packed her bags and the two walked the short distance to a nearby hotel, where they both took rooms for the night. This strategic relocation, seeming on a whim, saved their lives. At 4.10 in the morning, a loud crack resounded through the still night air as a huge rock far up on Turtle Mountain broke loose and plunged down onto the mountainside. The boulder was quickly followed by another and still another. The ground in the town trembled as a 640 by 914 by 152 meter thick wedge of mountain broke away and thundered into the valley below. The slide spread out like a fan, covering part of the town, including John's empty cabin shop. When the boulders hit, Ellen Thornley was catapulted out of her bed and dumped on the other side of the room. The terrible quaking lasted for more than a minute, then died to stillness. It was not until the first few streaks of dawn lit the exposed heart of the Turtle Mountain tragedy. What a comfort it is in the world of constant change to hear the words of our steadfast Heavenly Father. I am the Lord, I do not change. Even though the dearest things from our hearts may be removed, He said His love and kindness shall never depart from us. Taken from Amazing Facts, copyright 2016, by Amazing Facts, used with permission.